No, we'll get us started anyway. Uh, this will be the first of two. Uh, the main uh, text that we're going to be looking at today is 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, and we'll look at some other texts next week, uh, particularly 1 Corinthians 5, to show that um, uh, <laughs> it was very possible for the Corinthians to not pay attention to uh, the standard of morality that was expected of Christians. And in fact, even in the midst of an incredibly depraved culture, to uh, outdo them in terms of their depravity. But before we get started on tonight's subject, what should we do? Pray. Pray. Very good. Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Almighty God, we are so thankful that you have not left us in the dark as to your will and your nature and your desire for us. We thank you that you've given us your word, which is a trustworthy, a faithful recording of your work in history. And also, uh, it tells us how we are to live, how we are to worship you, and how we are to go about spreading the gospel. We are thankful, Lord, for the example of the past. Remind us that, uh, that there truly, as your servant Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. What has been done before will be done again. And we know, Lord, that we have not invented anything really new except in the technological realm. Oh, Lord, I do pray that you would help us, therefore, to learn from the example of Christians in the past and to apply it to our own day and age. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to be taking a look uh, specifically. We've, we've talked sort of this uh, about this peripherally because we talked about, um, about marriage and divorce last week. Well, we're going to talk, be talking about sexual sin and church discipline. And what I've tried to do is not to overload with content this time so that we can dismiss the kids early and then have longer to discuss ourselves and for them to discuss as well, to have those discussions that hopefully will uh, produce growth in grace and um, will be as iron sharpening iron. Okay, what's that place there, just so we all know? Corinth, okay, this is the main thoroughfare in Corinth. In the background, you have the Acro-Corinth, the great, uh, uh, the mountain and also castle, the redoubt to the city. Let's go to the next. Uh, all right, so what was this place famous for? What is it, first off? The temple of Venus. Not the temple of Venus. Athena. Not Athena. What? Aphrodite is correct, yes. So between Venus and... One, yeah, no, we're, it was a Greek city. They still called it by the name of the Greek goddess. <laughs> no. Anyway, although the Roman pantheon did get to name the, uh, uh, the planet, so, you know, there were some advantages there. In any event, uh, this place was famous for... Thousands of temple prostitutes. That's right, male and female temple prostitutes. So going to Corinth was, uh, was a debauched experience. Let's go to the next uh, slide. We know of the cultic uh, prostitution and sexual depravity of, of Corinth because of ancient writers. It was so famous that to Corinthianize was to debauch someone, and Corinth gained the same kind of reputation Paris had in the early 20th century and Vegas has today. Uh, as a general rule, most European cities have a debauched uh, um, uh, reputation these days, so Paris is not particularly special in that respect any longer. Uh, moving to the next. However, much of that, that is the debauchery and so on, of Corinth was cleaned up with the advent of Christianity. In other words, they went through a definite change in their, uh, in their morals and their mores 
uh, in the later Christian Empire, and it was a thoroughly different city by the time the Ottomans took over. Uh, that is the Ottoman Turks. What religion were they? Muslim. They were Muslim in 1458, and of course they ruled uh, that section of the world for almost 400 years. Um, so, next. To find out what Corinth looked like during the time of Paul, we'd need a wealthy Roman city frozen in time, and then we would need to remember this. This is very important. Even if we could find the wealthy Roman city that was frozen in time and take a look at the, uh, uh, what was going on within that, we would have to remember that Corinth was worse. It was the most famous of the Roman uh, cities for this uh, particular, for sexual depravity. So, do we have Roman cities frozen in time? Pompeii? Yes, we do. We've got two. Pompeii and Herculaneum, AD 79. Uh, these figures, I could have picked some even more... Um, uh, sad ones. Uh, do you know how they were formed? These figures here. Yes, Joy. They, uh, there was uh, it, since it, the, the volcano spewed ash. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of eruption do we call that, Joy? That's a. It was actually considered pyroclastic. It's a pyroclastic eruption. So, that's correct. Um, No, this is this is one of many. There's there's entire they were, families. They were in a building. If this is the one that I'm thinking of, they were inside a building. Right. Huddled, uh, huddled together. Right. So um, they build. The people were covered in ash, and then what happened to their bodies? They they were covered, mm-hmm. and then as they were desiccated, um, the, the, the these were molds. Yes, they formed they formed cavities, and archaeologists kept finding these weird spaces. And then somebody had the bright idea of let's pour uh, plaster of Paris into them, and boom, this right. is uh, this is what was formed. Uh, these uh, they were but literally the most of them. They, they, they right, the last. So you had a picture of the last moments of the uh, the citizens uh, frozen in time, so to speak. But it wasn't just the people who recovered. The entire uh, both cities, Pompeii and Herculaneum, when Vesuvius erupted, were entirely covered with ash. They were frozen in time. And for the most part, archaeologists, uh, even uh, you know, robbers and so on, um, didn't mess with the area because it remained populated and walked over and so on uh, for many hundreds of years. Uh, full-scale archaeology on the site didn't really get started until the 1920s, interestingly enough. Moving to the next. Archaeologists excavating the city, though, found uh, many interesting things that we would associate only with our time. Uh, things like snack bars and fast food joints, uh, selectively bred small yappy pocketbook dogs, obviously owned by wealthy women, the, uh, you know, the Paris Hiltons of the uh, Roman world, and reminders for people to keep their dogs leashed. They actually had, uh, they had uh, paintings and warnings, uh, particularly around the food stalls, keep your dog on its leash, etc. So very much city life that was analogous to our own time uh, in the late Roman Empire. This is uh, 79 AD. But they also found something else. Moving to the next. Uh, they also were... Uh, I'm, my English is bad here. They were also slightly shocked to find a wealth of frescoes, mosaics, sculptures, carvings, and pottery bearing pornographic pictures. Uh, the city was, was absolutely covered in uh, the, the most common graffiti, for instance, in the city, was, uh, were phallic symbols. Uh, while several were discovered in the brothels, 
some of the most explicit were discovered in the public baths, okay? So where everybody, uh, all the adults would normally meet, and in houses uh, depicted both heterosexual and homosexual scenes. Um, go to the next. Uh, most were explicit and sometimes absolutely perverse. Uh, perverse enough that they would still gain a triple X rating today. You couldn't put them in an R rated movie. Yes, George? Um, I, you know, I know that that was not attributed because of the Temple of Aphrodite, mm -hmm. but because it was a considered to be like a luxury vacation spot. Yes, this is where the Roman upper classes had their, their summer homes, uh, as a general rule, Pompeii and Herculaneum. So although there were lower class buildings, but, uh, and you could be comfortably middle class, so for instance, one of the most famous houses in Pompeii is the Centurion's house. Okay, so a Centurion would be you know, a top NCO within the Roman military. Uh, moving to the next. Uh, the problem with all of these frescoes is I can't show them to you. Okay, um, they are explicit, they're pornographic. It's, it's ancient pornography and therefore it's not fit for church consumption. Uh, so I had to black out, uh, you know, and this is one of the tamest of the frescoes. Um, I, uh, I'm a terrible husband. I did this specifically so I could, I could uh, but I, I showed joy some and I said, I just want you to be able to say that I'm not lying when I say these things are absolutely perverse, I was, right? I was an artist Yes. She already seen some of this stuff, but anyway, so it was uh, it was really shocking uh, to a lot of the archaeologists, even in their time. Uh, this one was uh, the the fresco is entirely nude. Uh, it's a fresco from the sleeping room of an ordinary house in Pompeii, the bedroom. This is the bedroom art. Um, moving to the next. Uh, the important thing to remember is that the modern idea that ancients were all puritanical and that we were the first culture to discover things like promiscuity, pornography, homosexuality, transvestism, et cetera, is utter bunk, okay? It is, it is completely wrong. Also, the idea that Christianity was morally conservative because it inherited the moral conservatism of the surrounding uh, culture, that is also utter bunk. We see that especially in places like um, uh, for instance, not, not just in the, the Greco-Roman world, but also in the Jewish world. Uh, many of the Herodians, for instance, to, to, be a, uh, uh, to be born a Jew did not necessarily mean that you were going to move in, uh, into the Pharisaic line. You could become a Herodian. You could uh, throw your lot in with the Romans and become uh, quite debauched as well, end up marrying one of your relatives, close relatives, and so on, and having your... Uh, your wife's daughter dance for your drunken friends, things like that. We read about it all the time. So it's not just the Greco-Roman society that allowed for um, uh, sexual immorality, but you know you could live in ancient Judea and also be um, sexually depraved as well. The Corinthian Christians had to deal with it every day, and many, if not most of them, uh, fell afoul of it before coming to Christ. The picture, for instance, in the background that's being used is of a, a Greek man buying the services of a, uh, of a young uh, Greek man. This is pederasty, obviously. Moving to the next. So Paul addresses the Corinthians where they are and, um, uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. So let's take a look at that particular section. Can I get a volunteer uh, rather than having a voluntold to read? Anyone? Joy. Okay. Your hand was for to go up there, so. You said 9 to 11? Yes. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, revilers, revilers, (laughs) (laughs) nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, that you were washed, that you were sanctified, that you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, that particular list that you read there, it's in many ways similar to another list that you should remember from fairly recently. What, what uh, list would that be, Isabel? <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> okay. Yes, Ty? Yes, the works of the flesh that we find in Galatians 5. That's correct. Okay, so if you will just turn two books ahead to Galatians 5. <coughs> yeah, there you go. Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Uh, now, he doesn't go into quite as much detail as he does in 1 Corinthians 6. And notice that when he's talking to the Corinthians, he particularly pings what kind of sins? Sexual sins, right. Uh, so Paul speaks to the people um, of Corinth where they are, and particularly hits their, their, uh, their reigning sins. Um, moving on, let's pick this section apart. Don't, uh, don't obviously change your where you are in the Bible. We're going to continue talking about this. Paul has listed just some of the sins contrary to the Christian walk and mark people who will not be going to heaven. All right? If this is your lifestyle, if this is the lifestyle you enjoy, the lifestyle that you think is good, are you on your way to heaven? No. No. All right. So, next. So, here's the question. Who is it that goes to heaven when they die? What? Okay. Ty says people who don't do those kind of things. Yes, son? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us walk in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. So that is in Galatians 5, verses 24 through 26. Excellent. You went on from where we stopped and you went to the works of the Spirit and talked about the, uh, the way that we're crucified. But I'm going to give you a much shorter answer. What? The answer is sinners go to heaven, but redeemed sinners. Okay. Uh, Do me a favor and turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 2. And then starting with verse 6. Who wants to read that? Oh, uh, 16, you're right. So, okay. sorry. I got it. Okay. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him, he believed tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of, the, of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. 
So one of the things that we need to uh, remember is that in order to be redeemed, you need to be a sinner. You need to remember that you were a sinner, that you are a sinner, and that you are in need of redemption in the first place. If you don't think you're a sinner, can you be redeemed? No. You don't go to the doctor when you don't think you're sick, at least uh, those who aren't, you know, fond of the doctor. Uh, they tend to stay away because they don't think anything's wrong with them. My, uh, it, I, it always it cracks me up. Uh, whenever I go in to the doctor's office, I'm always asked with a cheery smile, how are you doing today? And I always, you know, I, my, my knee-jerk reaction is, I'm fine. And then I always back up and say, wait a minute, if I was fine, I wouldn't be here, would I? You know, and I'm sure the nurse is hearing, uh, is tired of hearing that one, but in any event, uh, the only time we go to the doctor is when we're sick. And the only time we tend to go to Christ is when we're sinners. Yes? We're going to get to the, uh, the connection between justification and sanctification. And the, uh, uh, so moving to the next. Uh, David Jackman makes a good comment here. He says, but the glory of the gospel is the church is composed of redeemed sinners, people whose values at one time were exactly the opposite of those of the Lord Jesus, yet who have since experienced a change that is too wonderful to imagine. Those of you who are redeemed as adults know exactly what he's talking about. Uh, at one point, you were uh, completely opposed to the things of God and Christ. And then you were made into a follower of this. Let's go to the next. Note some of the things, though, that Paul points out to them uh, in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, the first is, and such were some of you. Um, go to the next. Now, it is true that Paul says, after describing the sins of unrighteousness, that Paul says, and such were some of you, not all of you. He doesn't say you were all, you know, fornicators, adulterers, uh, liars, and so on. Uh, not every Corinthian was guilty of these particular sins, but Paul is not trying to say that only some members of the church used to be sinners. You understand that. He's speaking, of, uh, speaking to a people who universally were sinners. Rather, he was saying that only some members of the church committed these particular sins. Only some members may have specialized in these particular sins, but that does not mean that they were not sinners themselves, right? Okay, moving to the next. Note the universality of the sin problem we have. Somebody look up Ephesians uh, 2, 1 through 3, and somebody look up Romans 3, 10 through 12. I got it. Uh, Ephesians. Okay, go ahead and read Ephesians. Now work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom all also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Okay. So, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So who's excluded from that list, Isabel? Who's excluded from that list? Jamie, who's excluded from that list? No one. No one. It's a universal list. We're all, we're all on that list. So um, how about Romans 3, 10 through 12? Who's got that? Okay, Ty. So um, again, who's excluded from that list? No, not one. Okay, everybody is included in that. So we're all universally by birth, as a matter of fact, born dead in our sins and trespasses. From the word go, we are all what, Cram? Sinners. Sinners. And therefore, we're all in need of? Salvation. We're all in need of salvation. And unless we have that salvation, what's going to happen to us? We're going to go to hell. That's right. But you will note that there's a relationship between the sins and the salvation. First off, we're all sinners before we become saved. Do the sins stop entirely at that point in time? No, No, they do not. But at the same time, if we are marked by those sins, what does it say about us? If those are the things that we spend all of our time doing, for instance. We're still living in our sins. So if um, somebody in Corinth said they were a Christian, but they looked exactly like their fellow Corinthians in every way, what would you say about that profession of faith? It's not a real uh, profession of faith. It's in name only. They would be, I guess, kinos, uh, Christians in name only. Or sinos, would it be? I don't know. Uh, in any event, moving on. So what made the difference, though? Did they leave Corinth? Did they group, get group therapy? Did they join Alcoholics Anonymous? Did they listen to Medicus Philippus? Can anybody translate Medicus Philippus by any chance? Dr. Phil, <laughs> yeah. So, but Bob Chang is the ancient version, obviously. What happened? What made the difference, though, in their lives? The what? Oprah. I didn't list Oprah. Oprahs. Oprah. It would be yeah. It would be Oprah. Anyway. Um. Paul was the one that led them to the Spirit, and the Spirit changed their lives through sanctification, right. which is a process. The regeneration, uh, a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and then the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit made the, uh, the difference in their lives. Going to the next. So Titus 3, 1 through 7 spells this out. Somebody, somebody read it for me. Say what? Yeah, it's, it's kind of exciting. All right. Okay, Nate. Redeem them to be. Oh, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey and to to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of none, one, no one. To be peaceful, peaceable, gentle, and showing. All humanity, humility, 
to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and um, pleasures, living in malice and hating hateful and hating one another. But when kind, the kindness of kindness and the love of God our Savior towards men appear not by works of not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his miracle his mercy his mercy he he saved us through the washing of re regeneration and renewed renewing of the Holy Spirit. Got a breath? John, you want to finish it? Sure, I'll finish. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, thank you, Nate. Um, so, one, he, uh, Paul says that we were once all what? Yeah, we were once all foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various... But that wouldn't include Paul, right? Because Paul was born into a good Jewish family, right? He went to synagogue. He was at the feet of Gamaliel. He was taught the Ten Commandments. So he was a good kid, right? Wasn't a sinner. Didn't need Jesus. No, wrong. That's wrong. Yes, no, he, he needed Christ. In fact, what did he do to the church? He persecuted them. He hated Christ. Right? When he heard the gospel, what was his heart reaction to it? Yeah, he wanted to kill whoever was, was preaching it. It went directly, it made him angry. It made him furious, as a matter of fact. So he hated those things. But what, what changed him? He was beaten into the Christian faith, right? Shock therapy. Well, he did get knocked on his butt, didn't he? But what does he say appeared to him? Well, the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by the works of righteousness. Okay, but he says, this was the great kindness of the Lord. What did he do within them? What did he do within him? He, he washed him. He changed him. Okay, through the regeneration. Regeneration means new birth. Right. So born again. So he was born again. And then what happened? Okay, and so he became an heir according to uh, the hope of eternal life. And because of this, now he has the ability to do, and now they have the ability to do the things that he lists in the beginning, right? So what did he say? To be subject to rulers and authorities. Is it our nature to be subject to new rulers and authority in the natural man? Oh, no. One of the things that um, we're seeing in America, and it shouldn't surprise us, is, is um, everybody's a rebel now. Everybody. Uh, to every, you know, the only... The only authority that people are willing to acknowledge is their own authority. And they want everybody to submit to that. So we're tyrant, tyrants and rebels. Um, but we're to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now, those are things that only Christians can do, though, in reality. 
Uh, and he reminds them that we were once not able to do that because we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And we did all the wrong things, but then the kindness of God appeared to us. So justification. Moving to the next. And then sanctification. So what is the obvious connection between justification, sanctification, and the former sins that marked our lives? What do we see about all three? Yes. Joy. Okay, spirit versus not spirit. Right, so the works of the spirit, the power of the spirit, right? Okay, very good. If we are truly justified, how's that happened? Let me ask that question. If we've been truly justified, how did it happen? By God's grace and by God's justifying works. It means we've been justified, right? Justification means that we've been given a new heart. Faith has been worked within us. Now, is it possible for somebody to be justified but not sanctified? How? Charlie. Okay. Had the thief in the cross, though, continued on, right? So there is, uh, and Charlie's right, there is the category of the deathbed conversion where you're not going to see works that flow out of faith. Absolutely. Um, so is sanctification absolutely necessary for, uh, is the process, we should say, of sanctification absolutely necessary for somebody to go to heaven? No. They can be justified believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and then die. That's absolutely true. Uh, and they will be just as saved as anybody else. Um, but normally, if somebody is justified, we have the golden chain. All right? That, uh, Paul, we don't have time really to go over it in Romans. Maybe we can later on. Romans 8, uh, which talks about the fact that if we have been justified, then we will be adopted, sanctified, uh, and eventually one day glorified. Okay? Because we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's God's purpose in our lives that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So we would be less like the first Adam and more like the second Adam, Christ, and in our entire life. Now, that doesn't all happen at once, and it's not 12 easy steps, and you certainly won't get it from reading Joel Osteen's books. It's a process by which we are, through the means of grace, made more and more. We die to self, and we live to Christ. God gets big, and we get small. So what happened to the sins that we once loved? in that process. Yeah, they, they get smaller and smaller as well as we begin to hate them, okay? Um, it's rather like the process of shrinking a tumor, okay? A cancer that kills you. Uh, gradually, it is uh, it, it's put to death. It's not necessarily altogether killed at once. However, there is lordship in our lives, okay? We are now, uh, we confess Jesus as Lord and we are under his dominion, no longer under the dominion of sin. So that uh, the power that's in charge of us is no longer the prince of the power of the air. So move to the next. Also, yes, go ahead. Also in that process of sanctification, good works for which we were saved, that Ephesians mm -hmm. should grow in, in occupied our time. Not because that's how we get saved, but because we were saved. Right. We are we turn to those works, and that process of sanctification without some sort of good works associated with it also be Right. Um, are there some sin patterns that we can't ever change and should identify ourselves with? If you're saved, no. 
There's a lot of confused faces here. Yes. Can you explain so. that question? Like, because there are some things that like are hard to stop doing. Like All right. So should should we call ourselves? And Graham has his hand up. I see your hand. Uh, I will call on you next. I promise. Um, should we refer to ourselves, for instance, as Christian drunkards, no. uh, as gay Christians, no. as thieving Christians, no. uh, as Christian prostitutes? No. Okay, uh, Graham. The, the question was identify with. We're not supposed to identify with uh, our sins. So you're not supposed to say, like, "Yeah, I, I'm gay." You just leave it at that. I'm a thief. My nature is I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I'm a drunkard. I'm a whatever. You know. So that's how we define ourselves. And that's fine. I'm, you know, I'm weak, and what's wrong with that? You know, but, uh, so uh, moving to the next. Yes, Derek. Sir. So going back to what you guys said beforehand about how yes, through sanctification, as our sin, uh, as we grow in Christ, mm-hmm. in but it does say in there that sin is like a lion. Like essentially, it's ready to pounce at your devil, the enemy, uh, is looking for someone to devour. Yeah, the, the, the corruption, the, there's a, a portion of the corruption that will remain throughout life. But it should be lessened uh, as we go on. If there's never any lessening whatsoever in a person's uh, sin, uh, then usually the, the problem is there's no, there's no root, there's no principle, there's no sap, there's no Holy Spirit helping In, in many cases, it will take, uh, and sanctification is not the same rate. Every, you know, you get on, it's, a, it's not like a course you take in 12 weeks, and everybody goes through at the same rate and then graduates at the same time. Joy. process of spiritual warfare, which doesn't involve flying planes into buildings. It involves uh, fighting against the powers and principalities in this world. And by that, we don't mean, um, you know, those who are ruling in Washington or, uh, you know, Tehran or whatever. Uh, we mean ultimately fighting against uh, the prince of the power of the air and uh, the dominions and rulers of darkness. Um, all right. But in the ancient church, uh, they were very clear on this. This is the Didache, which was uh, given to uh, disciples. The teachings, uh, these are the things you need to obey, and this is just a small uh, bit of it. Uh, the second commandment, uh, it's the first commandment, it's not following the ten commandments, but these are the commandments of the, digi- uh, the Didache. Grave sin forbidden. And the second commandment of the teaching, you shall not commit murder, 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit pederasty, and that's another word for homosexual conduct. You shall not commit fornication. You shall not steal. You shall not practice magic. You shall not uh, practice witchcraft. You shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is born. Uh, one of the uh, things that you should notice is their sins are our sins. Okay, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. And that uh, the very fact that they were common within society uh, was the reason why they were told that you must, they're not going to tell them to do things that aren't common within, uh, within their society. So, um, and certainly they're not going to tell them not to do things that weren't sinful. So they sat down in the negative. These are the things that won't mark you okay, any longer. These are the things where you break definitively with your society and you no longer practice them. So moving to the next. Meanwhile, in the modern church, okay, this was a book recently written by a, uh, a minister within the PCA who identifies himself as a homosexual, says he is never going to change, it is impossible uh, for him to change, and that all attempts to change uh, homosexuals are vain and uh, wrong-headed. Uh, so he wrote a book called Still Time to Care, What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality. He believes that no one who was, uh, and he is a born that way uh, guy, no one who was uh, born with that particular sin or proclivities toward that particular sin has ever been changed. No one. Now the sad thing is, I have actually met, I, uh, I engaged him online when he first uh, began to get really uh, vocal uh, after he came out with his uh, article in Christianity Today, which begins with the words, Bill, I'm gay. Uh, I said, I have actually met people who were born with homosexual inclinations. Uh, and who lived in the life uh, for a time, who are now uh, Christians who no longer identify in that way, who have gotten married, who have moved on, uh, or who are single and not just single and continuously struggling against uh, sinful urges. Um, but what we are seeing, not just, and I just use the PCA as an example to show that this is not something that's uh, alien to the reform world, what we are seeing at the moment is evangelicals are at the moment in the process of falling over to this and various other sins, the Southern Baptist uh, Convention meeting of late, if you're, conser if you're theologically conservative, was holy mackerel awful. Uh, I mean, if they could have caved into more of the world's um, uh, assumptions, I, I don't know how they would have done it, but it was, a, uh, it was uh, fairly, fairly awful. Um, and this is, uh, like I said, this is just one example. There's nothing that was present within the Corinthian culture that isn't present within our culture. And nothing present within our culture that the church is not being asked to make concessions to. Now, obviously, the ancient Corinthian church, they, when they made it, could they have made concessions to the culture? Absolutely. They could have done it across the board. But we're going to see that, that they did not, and Paul told them not to. Now, in doing that, they were being, what do we call that? When you go against the culture, you're being countercultural. Okay? Now, we used to think that the counterculturals were the guys in the VW buses who smoked weed dressed like hippies and called the dead around the, uh, uh, the United States. That is not countercultural at the moment. Countercultural is I get married to a woman, if I'm a man, and we have a bunch of kids, and we go to work, and we go to church, and we, that's, that's counterculture today. So that was also countercultural back in the time of the Corinthians. All right? Now, um, uh, the next question is really for, I think it's a discussion question comes up, the big one. Okay. And this is, Matt, yes, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to be dismissing the kids, is the issue. What do you mean still time to care? Do you mean before the second company, you can get right? 
Oh, uh, that um, uh, he believes that if the, what he's arguing for within the book is that if the church um, does a, a 90 degree turn and stops trying to persuade homosexuals that there's freedom from homosexuality and all sexual sins in Christ, and instead adopts a, will nurture you as homosexuals, integrate you into the church as homosexuals, um, that we can have an effect on, on the homosexual community. So, yeah, you and I know that. Greg Johnson, however, is still clueless about this point. So, no, he means that we're in danger of. He believes that uh, if we don't change, I mean, and this is one of the theses of the book. This is why, according to him, and people who think like them, we're losing this generation, and that uh, unless we change the way the PCUSA changed to meet the needs of the culture in the 1970s and was wildly successful and became the largest denomination in the United States. Today is, you know, just filled with kind of, you know, uh, it's, it's all, it's stupid, but it's, it's a worldview. I know, that's the whole point. His, his philosophy doesn't work, never has, you know. <laughs> but, um, okay, let's go to the, uh, let's dismiss the kids and then we'll also have our discussion. Goodbye, children. God be with you, Dave. All right. So here's the discussion for us. And I, I don't want to do the majority of the talking. I, I do the majority of the talking as it is. But this needs to be, obviously, this is a biblically-based conversation that we're going to have. There's a massive push that's succeeding on many levels in very many different denominations to norm sin, okay, the sins of the culture. Now, we pretend that we're the first people who ever came up with these sins, obviously, that there was no homosexuality in the ancient world. Ha! <laughs> that's, there, was no, there was nothing you know, that would push towards gay marriage or anything like that. It's, it's ridiculous, but nonetheless, um, there's still this idea that uh, the Bible... Um, isn't speaking to these issues, doesn't have uh, anything to say about them, and that we need to norm, we need to integrate, and so on. How do, we, how do we deal with the push to norm these things? What do we do? Especially with the next generation, because our kids are falling in line with that. Uh, and incidentally, why are, why are our kids falling? Why are our kids, like we're the reformed you know, types, why are they falling in line? Yes, Joy. So, and that requires hard conversations that look like, 
sacramental parenting, in some senses, where you say no, a, and I, you give them back to accepting everything that they're going to come up with. There was a hilarious meme, uh, a social commentator for one of the big, um, and, and you know, the, the amazing, the, the statements being made by people writing for major publications like the New York Times and the Atlantic and stuff like that are, are sometimes they're mind-boggling, but uh, uh, they were marking on a piece of uh, legislation uh, oriented towards parent rights, and, uh, <laughs> um, and the author said, Mark my words. This is going to lead. This is going to lead to parents stopping their children from watching R-rated movies in their own homes. And she's being serious. And uh, uh, you know, somebody commented on it. In some cultures, this is called parenting. <laughs> so, well, yeah, of course, we, we stop them from doing that. It's just evil, you know. But it's just alien to our culture today. So yes. Oh, sorry. I was going to slightly piggyback off of what Joanna was saying. Go ahead. In the sense that. Um, also, that the newer generations, mm -hmm. they feel like doing that parenting is mean or rude in some way. Mm -hmm. And so instructing and educating them in the sense that doing that, one, is good, and two, that although society has told you to just accept like the normalizing sin or whatever as a positive thing, it's helpful and we're being nice, in the long run is not the kind of thing. The, okay. In the long run, the eternal run, the kind thing to do is to correct and do the parenting choice. Amen. So, All right, so one, two, and then three. So if you look at what's raising a lot of children these days, it's social media, it's TV, it's pushing the agenda, what it's hard for. And so now it's the new norm, and it's the end thing to be gay. It's the end thing to change your sex because it's just something to do, and everybody's doing it. Excellent point. Yeah. Bobby? Okay. I think it's a lot of it has to do, and, and uh, I hate to bring up my mental health on this example, but the education system, like, I was starting to feel like it was starting to do that at, in the 90s, like about 96, when I started getting real bad sick. But that's got a lot to do with it, uh, that the public school system is. Uh, 
pushing it, uh, pushing their values from uh, the top down, starting like mm -hmm. at the elite schools, then went to like public schools. Some private schools are now getting it, yeah. and now uh, even down to preschool. Um, I saw like Drag Queen Story Hour at a Methodist church. Oh yeah, no, and they've got transvestite ministers now, so drag queen ministers. Um, one of the books that really tackles the subject very well um, and records it is uh, Carl Truman's uh, Rise and Progress, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, which takes you through the various ages and shows how um, the, uh, we now are, uh, as a result of, of years of uh, secular philosophy, particularly uh, going back to Freud, uh, we have this idea of the self as central to all things, and that we make ourselves. You know, there's a lot of French existentialism and ideas uh, involved in this, um, and it breeds narcissism. Now, um, it was interesting. Son, you mentioned TV, but the the average kid these days is not watching TV. They're watching TikTok. They're watching um, they're watching the the two or three minute video, uh, which also destroys their attention span. Completely, and the devil, as you said, knows what he's doing. Uh, a sermon takes 45 minutes. I, I mean, I am how many TikTok videos, and it never changes. You know, they would never choose you know, their own free will and accord uh, something like that. I always feel like I should put on a new outfit. You know, kind of jump up and then, okay, now's where I do the dance, and now, <laughs> now's where I have the pratfall. Oh, you know. Stuff like that, if I wanted to try to actually keep their attention for any period of time, I would have to go through a, a constant cycle of, of TikTok videos. But most of them are centered on self. It's narcissism. I mean, one of the most disgusting things in, uh, that I've ever seen in my entire life. And it wasn't disgusting because it was sexually uh, explicit or violent or anything like that. It was a mother in a NICU. Her baby has a, um, uh, a uh, what do they call it when the disease is inherited? I'm losing words. Congenital, Congenital uh, uh, birth um, uh, defect uh, and is desperately ill. She kisses the baby, puts it down, and then she moves to the side and does in the NICU her dance, her TikTok dance, you know? And everybody's like, you're a monster, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know what the, she, she still wanted to, the only, the only reason, you know, the baby had come into existence was to aid her in her Munchausen syndrome, to, to, to be a, a prop in, in her, uh, in her self-life. And, and her response has indicated that she just didn't even understand. Why on earth are you attacking me? You know, for, uh, my, my dance was pretty good. Um, and, and stuff like that. It was just, we don't understand anything but self at this point in time. And the, the idea of being selfless, which is critical to Christianity, I find, I find is alien to our kids. And as a result, they're, they're really, they, I hate to say this, but most Christian kids today suck at, uh, stink, sorry, I gotta start. Stink at evangelism. Utterly useless at sharing their faith um, and getting others to, to come in. So, so on and enjoy. So, um, fun fact. Uh, fun fact, good. Fun fact. Um, fun Mm -hmm. It's about self, do what you feel. You, you know, 
though. And it's like, it's been, so this is where it's coming from. This is the doctrine of devils. Like it's, and it's everywhere. And it's running like friends, like yeah. everywhere. And if we don't teach them the truth, the biblical truth, and what the Bible actually says, as opposed to what they think it says, because they're twisting Jesus and making them say like, well, Jesus was here, he wouldn't say that. Um, just, he said it already. I was going to say, he was here, and he did. Sorry. Right. One, uh, one, many, I, 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 countless theologians at this point have pointed out that the essential sin, the first one, and the one that has continued on forever, has been the, uh, the fallen tendency to go from thy will be done to my will be done. And that's where all of our sins come from. Uh, Joy then, Derek. Uh, so, when do you evangelize? You use you're going to come up against something if you're speaking the, the, the gospel. You're going to come up against something that rubs against the flesh and therefore the natural man. And that's what's so challenging because people want to be loving. They, they do want to be loving. They want to be accepting. The exact same circumstance. I mean, my, my, all my gay friends were very, very accepting about anything except for conversion. Mm-hmm. Because they, it, the reason why, and I remember this, is that one, my friends started saying that they felt bad when they swore around me. And I said, I, I haven't said anything to you about that. And, and, but they knew, so they felt judged. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to feel bad. The whole idea of like taking all the things out of life that make you feel bad it, it, it is is a pretty common story, and everybody wants it to go easily. But the problem is, is that that's you don't nobody nobody gets better at much of anything except for dying if they if they keep themselves from never pushing themselves mm-hmm. to through hardship of some sort, right? Right. And, and so it's, it, it's hard, and people don't want to, I mean, I understand. I, I don't want people to hate me as well. I don't want people to, you know, um, like, you know, I, I don't want to make people unhappy. But it's inevitable. You know, you're going to make the unbeliever unhappy because you're on a different side of the field. So. Yes. We've been married long enough, I can tell what she's talking about. So, um, <laughs> this might sound controversial, but we're our on some controversial already, so, like, it's not good. Um, I'm trying to write words, how to say this. So, we talk about media, mm-hmm. and uh, if you understand the difference between media, it used to be that a lot of the sinful nature, particularly things of sexual immorality and sexuality, was kind of like like under the blanket. Like you could kind of see hints of it at mm-hmm. times, but it was like, nah, we're we're not gonna say that, but we're gonna like imply it or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, back then, also the church, while they were very strong about you know what was wrong. When you would hear a lot of people of these particular sins um, that is being 
they were hate speeches. Essentially, they came off as very hateful mm -hmm. because that's all they came off as is this is wrong, you know, and you're told this is wrong, this is wrong, this is, you know, this hate. And yes, there is hatred towards sin, which is good, but you don't hardly hear the, you know, the other side of that when people preach about these things. Like, for instance, as we look tonight, it says, you know, that list of sin, uh, people who will not inherit the kingdom. Paul says afterward, as some of you were, and such you were watched. So, the thing is, there's this way of how it's preached that it wasn't really doing that. Uh, it wasn't bringing that up that this is wrong, but you can't turn away from this. You can't be, you know, you essentially can be saved from this. Whereas now, it's kind of the opposite. Now, entertainment is very open. Like, mm -hmm. we're talking about with social media, you know, I'm not joking, like, I started up um, Twitter again, and one of the first things you see is like, something sexual, like, whoa, what? And that's like, mm -hmm. and, you know, YouTube, almost all their commercials is essentially, you know, sexualized as such. And social, you know, again, all these things, um, well, we have Pride Month now. But whereas the church, they started going the opposite of, okay, now we're going to be hush hush. They're doing the opposite, like, of what they did back then. Now we're, we are going to say this is wrong, but we're not going to directly say it's wrong. Like, it's, um, it's right. okay. You it's, it's almost like, um, you know, the, all the sins are out of the closet, and Christianity has gone into the closet, yeah. you know. And, uh, um, Bobby? And I just, I was putting my head down, hand down, because I just forgot what I was going to say. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry about that. No, no, no problem. So. Oh, I just remembered it. Okay. Let Jamie go first. Jamie. Well, uh, the question on the, on the overhead, how we deal with it. First, we have to pray for our own church and for the, the wider church. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's probably the most important thing. Uh, the second thing is we have to be, uh, to steal ourselves, to stand up for the church when, you know, when, we're, when someone asks us. You know, whether it be at a, a Christmas party or wherever, if, you know, people ask about this, you know, homosexuality or transgenderism, you know, is it, you know, what do you think about it? You just say the Bible teaches that it's simple. Uh, and there's a good chance they won't like to hear it, but you've got to stand up for that. Mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, of course, we, as in our own church, we have to stand for it as well. It may come a time where it's, if, if the wider Christian church really does go wildly on it, it's going to be harder, from, perhaps from a legal perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, for us to, you know, if, the, if our culture sees the church accepting it, a lot of churches accept it, but some churches not accepting it, are they going to associate accepting it with the wider you know, church, you know, Christian community? So, probably some uh, negative uh, legal ramifications that we haven't had to endure yet uh, could, be, could, could be in our future because of that. Oh, yeah. And so That's we have cool. to steal ourselves against it, be willing to, to suffer whatever those ramifications right. are, uh, and, and 
burden. Uh, and, and know that you know, persecution doesn't last forever. Uh, and that God uses it for right. Bobby, I, I will get to you. just wanted to um, say one thing, and then I'll give you the last word, Bobby. Um, the, um, in answering the question, and I do want to give us at least some answer to the question. The answer to the question is given in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. And it's given in 1 Corinthians uh, and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and so on. Um, all of these were cultures that were dealing with exactly the same pressures that we're dealing with uh, at this point in time. What did they do? They preached the word of God. They preached law and gospel. They let the world be the world and the church be the church. And they understood that we don't, uh, we don't bring the church in, or rather the world into the church. Okay? Rather, we save men out of the world and incorporate them into the, uh, into the, uh, the assembly of God. So they, they stuck to the word of God, and they preached that, and they uh, understood, and this is something that we have got to, we've got to get a firm hold on now. Persecution is the norm for Christians. We are the off-scourings. Jesus was not kidding. He wasn't even joking slightly when he said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Uh, the disciple is not greater than the master, okay? Get used to it, and after a while, you're like, oh, yeah, you hate me. I, I know you hate me. That's okay. I, I, I'm still, I'm not going to hate you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to preach the gospel to you, and you're going to be mean to me, or you're going to throw me in jail. You might even kill me or beat me to a pulp, and, and so on. And, and, you know, they did the same thing with my master. When he loved the world, they killed him. So um, get used to it, and that's what following Christ is about. And it's not about this world, this moment. Uh, we need to also get used to the idea of pilgrims and sojourners. Okay, we're passing through. This world is not your home. Okay, and this world is coming to an end. This present evil age comes to an end. As Jamie said, therefore persecution isn't forever. There's a day coming when all of it will be uh, burned up and rolled up like a scroll. Okay, Bobby, you had something you wanted to say. Okay, um, one thing that might make it a little harder is some of these hardcore stats. Mm-hmm. For lack of a better word, um, Amen. Yeah, they're so small though these days. That's yeah. why they. Uh, that's I mean the Westboro. Well, there's some other ones there. There, there, there are much. there are groups of, of people who are genuinely you know they're, they they uh, I, I joked that you know the Westboro group uh, um, had they met the guy the cripple outside the temple uh, you know would have. Uh, uh, marched around him with God hates cripples signs, <laughs> you know, it's the, uh, not the, um, not, not, that's clearly not the gospel. Uh, but those groups are, are dwindling by God's grace away to nothing. The, uh, the real, uh, the real thing that we should be afraid of now, um, as a friend of mine put it, he said, uh, um, to a liberal friend, uh, and it's been said before in the media, if you think the Christian right is scary, Wait until you meet the non-Christian right or the anti-Christian right. They're, uh, they're far scarier. Um, once Christianity is off the table in our culture entirely, and do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, to summarize you know, the, uh, uh, the Aleister Crowley motto uh, that Satanists have adopted as theirs, um, you know, the, things get very dark very quickly. That's where you get fascism and communism and all those uh, that's where the death count gets into the mega area. So, uh, but we know our calling, regardless of what happens in the world, we know our calling, which is to preach the gospel, be ready in season and out of season, uh, and to cleave to the truth, no matter what the world thinks about it. So, all right.
we'll, we'll, we'll talk about church discipline some, 